0: for that uh, that beautiful worship. I pray that we can continue uh, that mood of worship this morning as we move into the word of the Lord. Like Jeff said, my name is Connor Donovan. thankful to be here this morning. Um, Last time I was here and I was this nervous, I was standing right out there with my brother and uh, my dad, and uh, Julie and I were about to get married. Um, She had given me some socks that said, in case your feet get cold. Um, And believe it or not, they were really quite frigid that day. Um, thank you for allowing me to be here today, uh, this opportunity to proclaim the Word of God. Uh, it's a its a wonderful time of year to gather and, and be with family. I know it's been a tough one this year. We've had lots of, of chaos, lots of loss, um, but today I, I pray that we can approach God, we can approach the Word, and we can see how good He is to us, how great is our God, Um Before we get into it, though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled by the opportunity to even speak your name. We are thankful for all that you do for us. Lord, this morning we ask that you would hold true to your promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that there you are in the midst of them. Father, send your spirit. We know that your spirit dwells within us as believers but we ask that your spirit would move amongst us today in a way that maybe that hasn't been seen before. Lord, move in this room, move in the rooms surrounding us, move in the churches in this city, uh, in this state, in this country, and, and around our world, Lord. We just want to glorify your name. I pray today that my words would drop to the floor, but that yours would flow through me, that it would not be anybody here that would be brought glory, but it would only be you that we point to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, flip and and be turning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. John chapter 1, 1 through 5, and verse 14. Now, when you begin the New Testament, when you look at the New Testament, you flip about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, you find four books at the start. You find books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're referred to as the Gospels. The Gospels. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels. They're called that because they're very similar to one another. They use a very similar language. They use very similar stories. They basically repeat the same thing over and over with the goal of giving an account, a historical and theological account of who Jesus is in his time on earth, from the time he was born to the time that he was raised from the dead. Their, their goal is to tell you what happened. But the fourth gospel, the fourth gospel, John, where we are today, is a little bit different. It's not one of the synoptic gospels. It's called the Maverick Gospel. The Maverick Gospel. It uses different stories. It uses different language. It emphasizes different things. John attempts to tell a story that has the same goal, but takes a different method to get there So you've heard a lot about a Christmas story lately I'm sure, I'm sure Jeff has, has preached uh, over the past month about the story of Jesus' birth and, and the baby being laid in the manger And the, the shepherds coming in from the field And the wise men traveling into town And, and Mary and Joseph and, and all that good stuff The traditional Christmas story But today I want to introduce to you something different We'll call it the Maverick Christmas story It's John's account of the Christmas story. It's different than what the other Gospels teach, but it has the same goal. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. The Word of the Lord reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip forward to verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there's a popular phrase, uh, if, you're, if you're ever in uh, looking into real estate, if you're in the real estate industry, there's a popular phrase, uh, when concerning property that you're looking at. Is anybody familiar with that phrase? Go something like, location, location, location. Location's important when it comes to real estate. You don't wanna uh, buy a house in a, a crummy spot. If you're looking to live there, you certainly don't wanna do that. If you're looking to make an investment, you don't wanna do that. Location is extremely important when it comes to real estate. I would argue there's a phrase that we should take into consideration when we look at Scripture. The same way you would do this when you look at real estate. It's context, context, context. So when we look at the book of John, when we flip to John chapter 1, we need to know what's going on. We need to know the context in which John is writing. And in order to understand the context of this particular passage, we must first understand the way that Scripture is set up as a whole. What I mean by this is the idea that Scripture tells a story that I like to call redemptive history. Redemptive history. And what we're getting at by saying redemptive history is we're looking at the arc of time from the beginning to the end and how through all that time, God has the goal of redeeming His creation. Redeeming his creation from the moment that the first words were spoken in creation to the moment that Christ is seated next to the father in heaven. We see God working out his purpose of redeeming his creation. Seeing the context of John one is to see its place on the timeline of redemptive history. We've seen God work through creation We've seen him work through the fall when Adam and Eve chose to eat the the fruit from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat out of. We've seen God's people enslaved in Egypt. We've seen them freed from Egypt, led into the promised land. We've seen them gone and sent into exile two or three times. We've seen them freed from that. We've seen the prophets declare the coming Messiah. And now we finally see ourselves coming and seeing that come come to fruition. Now, Matthew and Luke take the opportunity to explain this in the typical Christmas story, where they talk about Mary and Joseph being approached by the angels, and they talk about uh, Mary hopping on the donkey and riding down to to Bethlehem. We see them being denied room at the inn, and we see them having Jesus and laying him in a manger. It's the traditional Christmas story. Mark, in, in his account, just skips it all and jumps straight to the baptism of Jesus. We can talk about that another time. But John approaches this moment in redemptive history differently. He wastes no time in getting to the point. Our context is that John wants his readers to know who Jesus is, not just as the baby born in the manger, but as Jesus as the Son of God. So the Maverick Christmas story begins with John emphasizing something unique. When Matthew and Luke introduce Jesus, they do so in a way that emphasizes his arrival and what we call the Incarnation. The traditional Christmas story. But John chooses to not speak on this particular situation, but instead focuses on who Jesus is within the timeline of redemptive history. So keep that in mind as we get started today. And this message is not intended to discredit the traditional Christmas story, but to provide a, a different perspective of it the way that John did. So John chapter 1. If we look at verses 1 and 2, they read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John begins his gospel account with a reference that immediately draws his readers back to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When the people would have read this first verse in John, they would have thought, interesting that he's using the same language that we find in Genesis chapter 1. His use of this phrase was most likely intended to help his audience make a connection that the beginning was absolute, but that God was before the beginning. The starting point of this gospel was not with Jesus lying in a manger, but can be traced back to before the beginning of the universe. But when John introduces his gospel here, he uses this this phrase, the word, the word. But what does John mean by this? What does he mean by word? Now, there are accounts all throughout history that examine the use of the word logos in Greek, which is uh, translated as word here. The Stoics, for instance, understood it to mean the rational principle by which everything exists. The ancient philosopher Philo thought that it referred to the ideal man. But others taught that it was just an outward expression of thought. And regardless of how it's interpreted, we see plenty of background throughout the Old Testament to show what John meant. And thankfully, John himself doesn't waste any time to explain who he's talking about. For the word that he's referencing here is Jesus. John emphatically states that the word was God and that the word was with God. And he makes three statements here that are foundational and fundamental to what we believe as Christians. The first being, in the beginning was the Word. The second, the Word was with God. And the third, the Word was God. He is linking Jesus with the beginning of all things. You see, nothing in Scripture contradicts itself. We find that all things work together to achieve the purpose of speaking about God's glory. So if we keep that in mind, then we can boldly proclaim the statement that the Word is God. Jesus is God. John states, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants us to have no reason to believe that this is anyone other than Jesus. The word that he speaks about is Jesus, and he's emphasizing here that before the incarnation, before the traditional Christmas story, before the birth of Christ, before he came as a baby, he was God, and he was with God, and he's still God. He doesn't want us to be confused about that. Now, often in our reading of Scripture, we have this misconception that we've got two different gods of the Bible. We've got the God of the Old Testament, who's this mean, vengeful, God who creates this law just to trip up his people and 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 help them to realize that they're just human And then we've got the God of the new testament who is who's this loving and and kind and, and gracious God this God who Who wants us to to have what's best for us and this God who who would give anything on our behalf? But john here in the first two verses of his gospel quickly debunks that myth He doesn't want his readers, he doesn't want us today to have a misunderstanding, but he wants us to connect the fact that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And it's reiterated throughout Scripture. We see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that the writer of Hebrews says these exact things. He says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, the Word, is co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. We don't have two gods, one of the Old Testament and one of the New, but thankfully we have one God. One God who exists throughout all time. One God that is transcendent through all things. One God who loves and cares and is just and merciful and full of just wrath. A God whose attributes work together with one another, not contradicting themselves, but working out in a way That we may not understand, but that we can rely on fully. If we believe that God is the same God in both sections of our Bible, that the author of Hebrews was telling the truth, then we can see that John is emphasizing the fact that Jesus, the Word, is co eternal with the Father and the Spirit, which is significant because that leads us to believe that Jesus is not, uh, there's no hierarchy within the Trinity. There's no division within the Trinity. There's no, no thought or glimpse of the fact that maybe God the Father is different than, than the Son or the Spirit in a greater way. But in fact, that they all work in harmony with one another. That all three persons of the Trinity are able to coexist without any sort of contradiction within themselves. John states that the Word was not only in the beginning, but that the Word was both with God and was God. And he moves forward in verses 3 through 5, and he says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John continues in his gospel by speaking to the power of the Word, speaking of the power of Jesus. He's emphatic that all things were made through the Word, and that nothing was not made through him. We talked about how he referenced back to Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1. Well, he does that again here in verse 3. He talks about Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, and he says that all things were made through the Word. And Genesis 1 3 reads, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now look at that again. And God said, "Let there be light." He said. So do we think it's a coincidence that John is emphasizing word and saying that all things were created through the word when in creation, God created by using words? I don't think there's a coincidence there i would say that this is john's way of helping us to see that the word jesus is the only thing that brings life is the only thing that brings life this theme as, of jesus as creator is consistent throughout scripture in fact paul speaks on it in colossians chapter 1 verse 16 when he says for by him all things were created talking about jesus talking about the word so as John continues in verses 4 and 5, he speaks about what that life is. He says, "In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it." John speaks to the idea of life and light, and it's important to remember that his intention is to point to the power of the word, the power of Jesus. For Jesus himself refers to himself as both life and light. The the scholar and theologian, uh, D.A. Carson, uh, he puts it, he articulates it well. He says, John is largely interested in light and life as they relate to salvation. The light is revelation which people may receive in active faith and be saved. The life is either resurrection life or spiritual life that is its foretaste. He says, when John talks about the light and life of men, he's talking about what Jesus is coming to talk about talking about how jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me because the word is the only thing that can bring life john expounds in verse 5 about the light in particular when he states that it shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and i believe it's john's emphasis here to point to the coming crucifixion of christ As the one who is light, even the darkness of death cannot overcome him. Even the darkness of death cannot overcome him. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But Connor, I thought this was a Christmas story. I thought you were going to tell us about Jesus as a baby. Well, as John writes in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this, to me, is where John's prologue gets absolutely phenomenal. It's amazing here, the language that's used, and I wish that the English language could fully encapsulate and and portray the way that, that John wrote this in Greek. Because when he was writing it, he was able to emphasize certain things that were different than what we have here in English. So, bear with me as we retranslate a couple of these words here. Uh, we'll call it the Connor Donovan version. Uh, I promise it's, it's not heresy, it's within scripture. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John calls his people back to the wilderness when Israel had been freed, when the Hebrews had been freed from Egypt, and they're, they're walking around for 40 years in the wilderness led by Moses. And they're required by God to build a tabernacle in order for him to be the center for their, for their worship. And one of the requirements of this tabernacle was that they were to build it in the center of their camp. In the center of their camp. When they were moving, it would be at the front. They would always be looking toward him. But when they'd stop, it was to be built right in the middle. That way, at all moments, when there was any hesitation, all they had to do was turn and look toward the center of camp, and they could see the place in which God resides. So, so, John writes here in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason that we're switching to the Conor Donovan version is because the word dwelt doesn't do this justice. The Greek word here, we should translate it as tabernacled. The reason we don't is because that makes no sense in English. But think about it this way. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus, the word, chose to take on flesh at this moment. And he chose to get right in the middle of it all with his people. He chose to tabernacle amongst us. For John to use this language meant that he was emphasizing emphasizing something very specific. He was showing his readers that Jesus took on flesh and didn't hang out in the background, but chose to get in the middle of it all with us. Think about the severity of this statement here. Jesus, the one who created all things, the only thing that can give life, chose to come into a fallen world, into a creation that had turned their back on him and get in the middle of it with them. And as John writes this, think about about the shock and awe of the people reading it. And try to put yourself in that place. I want you to see just how extreme this statement is. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, dwell amongst us. Tell me that's not the Christmas story. The maverick Christmas story. For John is telling us about the incarnation of Christ just in his typical maverick way. Instead of a story about a baby in a manger, John tells us a story about a holy God coming to tabernacle among his chosen people. The best part about Christmas is that it doesn't end on December 25th. The best part about Christmas is not that a baby was laid in a manger. The best part about Christmas is not any of the things that we put up at the house or the presents that we give. The best part about Christmas is that the word's tabernacling didn't end with his birth. No, it didn't. Because the word, the one that became flesh, his birth isn't the end of it all. It continued through his childhood. It continued with him being at the temple when he was 12, teaching the older folks. It continued with him living a perfect life, devoid of sin. It continued with his ministry leading these 12 guys around for 3 years. It continued with him being arrested and beaten and bruised and spit on for crimes that he didn't commit. It continued with him being hung on a tree as a sacrifice and a curse. It continued with the first and only time in history, in redemptive history, that the father turned his back on the son. It continued with him being laid in a tomb. But hallelujah, it still didn't stop there. For it continued, his tabernacling continued with his resurrection from the dead three days later by the power of the Holy Spirit. It continued with him spending 40 more days talking to his apostles, telling them to go out to the ends of the earth, proclaiming his name. It continued with his ascension, and hallelujah again. Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, describes Jesus as wearing a robe dipped in blood, ready to come back. For his tabernacling did not end with his birth. Christmas does not end on December 25th. It didn't end after he was born. It continues to this day. And it will continue until he returns and makes all things new. The most epic moment in the Bible is seen with Jesus taking on flesh and tabernacling amongst his people. It's the perfect, perfect fulfillment of that tabernacle in the Old Testament. But even more perfect than that will be what we experience and we read about in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. John the Revelator writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The tabernacling did not end in the manger. The tabernacling is just going to get better. 2020 has been a rough year. But we have something so great to look forward to. When we experience a true dwelling with the Father. When he makes all things new and and the new heaven and the new earth fall from the sky and we get to spend eternity with him. It's an experience that could could only be known if you know him. One of the things, one of the duties of a preacher is to present the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to work. Today I encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to work. If you don't know the Father, if you don't know the Word, if you don't realize that He brings life and is the only thing that brings life and is the only way of salvation, then I encourage you to take the opportunity today to come to know Him. If you do know Him, then I encourage you to take the opportunity to get to know Him better, because His tabernacling didn't end at Christmas. It continues, and it will only get better as He comes again. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, Brother Jeff will come forward and and lead us in our time of invitation. Bow your heads with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your choosing to tabernacle amongst us. Thank you for your sacrifice of sending your son to die. And for not ending it there, but for raising him from the dead and bringing him up to your throne and and for sending him back to us. That he will make all things new. Father, I pray that if there was anything spoken today that ran counter to your word and your glory, that it would have fallen short of those who hear. But the glory would have been brought to your name. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.